Welcome to Exploring Creativity. Our goal is to inspire, educate, and provide a community for creative people all over the world. On this podcast, we explore a variety of topics with a multifaceted group of creative people. We explore these topics in hopes of broadening your perspective and giving you the tools you need to do your very best work. Today, I'm speaking with Rory O'Flaherty. Rory is a mastering engineer. Together, we explore the pros and cons of comparison, productizing creative work, discovering the self, and so much more. It was a great conversation with a great friend, and I'm super excited for you to hear it. Hey. Dude. It's so great to see you. Um, This is one of, I would say, one of the most RSVP'd for Instagram lives that Um, I've done. Yeah. I was thinking about it this morning in the shower. The way you and I speak to each other on mic is special, and I miss it. You know, the way, actually, the way our conversations generally are special. But I think we do, I think we got kind of good at, when I think of working with Spider and John on the podcast, it's like, there's, there's different rhythms with each of the three of you. But with you, there was so much about your intuitions that were different to mine. And mm. that constantly were like upending things that I had sort of assumed were true. Or mm. kind of like taken as like, no, I, I, I know that. I, I've got that understood. And it's like over and over you would you would sort of school me because your intuitions were so different. And uh, I think people responded to that. They sort of responded to the good natured. I think I said to, to you one time, but, you know, I'm in love with questions and you're in love with answers. And consequently, we make a really good sort of pairing. So I'm glad that people are excited. You know, I'm happy, yeah. happy that I got the same people. People hit me up and were psyched about showing up. It does feel like a reunion show in some ways, like we're like uh, yeah. in our late 80s and we're like, <laughs> we don't have two of the members tonight, but uh, we're out here playing the hits. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it didn't work out, but here we are. You know, this is our, this is our hot 200 hit from 1987. Yeah. <laughs> I'm already starting on my face. A lot of people liked it. <laughs> yeah. Well, some people liked it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, a lot of a lot of some people. <laughs> yeah. I'll take it. If we can hit um, some people, we, we're winning. Yeah, definitely. You know, I can always gauge how excited I am um, with any guest by like how many topics I've pulled and sort of mm-hmm. as we're through the topic list, there's about 50 or 60 of them. And I'm coming through each one and thinking, have we opened threads about this before? Like, do I feel like they have a really interesting take on this or like, would maybe this is something we could explore together and kind of dig a little mm-hmm. deeper than I even know. So I do that yeah. evaluation with everyone I've spoken to so far. And for you, I mean, we've pried at so many of these things before. And I would say that a lot of the early writing of the book or, or the structuring of the book was like kind of coming up with different uh, concepts that I was pulling directly out of discussions for the podcast. I mean, it was like, it wasn't intentional as much as it was like, that was my influence at the time. That's where the momentum was. So going through that list was fun today to be like, oh man, like, oh, I want to talk about that. I want to continue this thread. I want to like follow up on that. And so there's like uh, 20 or something, <laughs> but awesome. Uh, you know, let's, uh, let's go down the list and mm-hmm. go in order alphabetically this time. The first one, I mean, the topic is collaboration. And mm-hmm. I know you and Spider have been collaborating for a while. I think your relationship is one that has changed the type of work you've done for a long time and you've really helped each other a lot. I'm wondering your thoughts on collaboration 
as a concept, where, what your journey with collaboration has been from when mm. you were young. Oh, wow. From when I was young. Wow. There's so many, there's so many layers to it. I was a terrible collaborator when I was young, like <laughs> awful. When I think back to, to being in bands and stuff, when I was young, I'm so embarrassed. You know, I was just not a good collaborator on any level, really. Um, either, either to sort of thought I was better than I was or too strong willed or had ideas like a really simple, silly thing. I was talking to, to a friend recently about this. I used to think that guitar was the most important thing in a band, you know, cause I played guitar and I thought like, well, you can play the whole song on a guitar. So that makes it like, that makes it foundational. Now that I've been making records for a minute, you know, or like at least finishing records, it's the least important thing on almost any record ever. Yeah. You know, I, when I talk to young mixers about mixing now and they're like, how should I, what should I start with? And I'm like, well, start with the vocal because that's all that matters. And then bring in the drums and bass because they matter. And then whatever space is left over, fill it with that other stuff, you know, yeah. like guitars and keyboards, like just my understanding of like the importance of the instrument. So consequently, like that, that silly concept in my mind, the guitar was foundational, led me to dismiss and to not, to just not understand what the other players in the band were doing. And I set a ceiling above which they couldn't sort of get. So yeah, very bad at collaboration. I was younger. Uh, I was thinking about collaboration recently and that sort of tension between the freedom, you know, and this is something Spider's often talked about, the freedom between, you know, and Jordan Peterson, and a bunch of people have sort of explored this theme of the, the need we have for responsibility to others and the sort of yoke that it places around your neck at the same time. It's like you need to work as humans. I think we often need to work as part of teams and we need to have people like you who, who upend our ideas and people who challenge us and people with their own agendas. And, and we need that push pull. And, and at the same time, it can be a burden sometimes, you know, there, there are days when you work as part of a team that all you do sort of deal with team dynamics or mopping up problems that other people on your teams have caused. And on those days, it seems like, why the fuck am I in a team? I think, you know, in the aggregate over time, it's apparent that we're stronger as teams. I mean, you know, I don't know that anything is true for everyone. Picasso, not much of a team player, I'd say, you know what I mean? And, but he needed a muse. That was clear. So I think that there's a tension. This is something we talked about. So many things in life are, are hang on these tensions that never go away. It's never easy to be a part of a team. It's never always sunshine and, and bro love. And like, we're, we're all in this together and everyone has the same ideas and the same goals. There's always Rob, but I think on balance collaborating, you know, has massive benefits and, and maybe there are times when you should go it alone. Like after the, after we, after you left the podcast and we, we went, went on hiatus, I sort of was a bit despondent and then it was like, oh, so we've just come out of a sort of a, a phase of collective growth, team growth, you know, um, cooperative growth, three, four people working together a lot and, and developing because of it and hitting roadblocks because of it. And then it's like, well, okay, I can sit around and mope about that, or I can find a new team, or I can have a little season of sort of personal growth. So it's like at home, you know, Sydney and I are working on the kids homeschooling. I'm working on my health with a dietitian, you know, and getting finance stuff, money stuff in better order. 
and getting through a lot of work in the studio and on the acoustic side that was bogging me down. So, you know, maybe, maybe there's a case to be made for little solo runs from time to time, but in general, I think collaboration is, is one of the master principles, you know? Yeah. Uh, there's so much there. I mean, as you were saying this, I was thinking of something I had mentioned a few episodes ago, which is this idea or something I'd arrived at after the episode, which is that collaboration is this subconscious agreement to a feedback loop among individuals. And oftentimes mm -hmm. like, it's almost like the subconscious feedback loop that you get into is like shocking when it starts to starts to loop. You're like, oh, right. That's part of this thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And feedback's an interesting topic and definitely a related topic. How has like feedback and collaboration, what has that relationship been over time? Feedback is funny because you have to, you know, sort of the underpinnings of feedback are, well, who's it coming from? Um, you know, there, there are instructions, like, let's say this is an extreme and I don't think about my work life like this, but say I master records and let's say there's a genius legacy musician who makes a sort of a confounding note on a, on a, someone I've been a fan of forever. And they send me a note on a master I did. And they're like, yeah, this sounds better, but it doesn't feel better. And I, I like the first master better, whatever. I don't understand it, but I trust them. They have a track record. They have, you know, a legacy of doing great work. Or then a note that, you know, uh, I get a mix from a, a young client who's just starting out and the mix is broken and I master it and make it better. And then they listen to it and like, oh no, I liked whatever better. And it's like, there's a tendency to sort of derate their note, you know, their feedback because like, well, they're younger, they're, they're naive, or sometimes you're protecting people, people's records from from themselves, you know? So the thing about feedback is it's got to come from people, feedback on your performance. You weight it depending on who it's coming from. People you trust, people you respect, people you don't. You know, if someone whose work I don't like or whose ethics I don't like or whose approach I don't like says they don't like what I'm doing, then it's like, ah, okay, so I'm not interested. If someone like you or, or Spider or John or my wife says, oh, that's not that's not working. That's a very different thing, you know? So for me, I've had there, there's a fairly short list of people for whom I really take what they say to heart, you know? And other than that, there's a kind of pigheadedness, I think, in my approach to, to, to feedback generally, which has benefited me in some ways and really inhibited me in others, you know? I mean, there's two types of feedback. There's, there's positive, there's cheerleading, and there's um, negative feedback, which is like, you're, you're fucking this up or you did fuck this up. You know, that matters too. who, who, who they're coming from, you know, I want to dig into, um, well, there's a few things there I want to call out. You mentioned this sort of short list of people that you have to give you feedback, which I think is, is great in many ways could be potentially stifling in other ways. If the, if you're in this bubble at some point, but at the same time, it is good to kind of we talked a lot about on the podcast about finding your four, finding those people that can give you the feedback. It's hard enough to get in a place where, where anyone can even deliver really unbiased or, or good, constructive, useful, forward moving feedback. I think when you have this convergence of good relationships and good feedback, that's where things get really special. And I think you were kind of tapping into that part. It's like, because I could ask, well, why don't you have a big 
group of people that you get feedback from? And I, I, I will actually, why don't you have a big group of people you get feedback from? I think I'm super sensitive in, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a, a fairly, you know, I don't know, you know, this phrase, highly sensitive person or whatever. I mean, in some ways I definitely am, am one. And I think I sort of protect myself from, you know, a lot of people's emotions and intuitions and stuff are very loud for me in my life. So I sort of, there's a, there's an element of self-protection. There are other areas, like I think about tuning speakers. And so, you know, I worked with PMC for eight years for anyone who doesn't know. And, you know, so like I started recording and mixing when I was 18, I'm 45 now. So for 27 years, I've been working more or less full-time, either recording, mixing, mastering, doing live sound, playing in bands, whatever. And, and, but with PMC for eight years in LA, I um, was going out setting up big systems for lots and lots of clients, lots of heavy hitters and A-listers and, and different types of people. So it's like, you know, at genius um, composers like Thomas Newman, who did like Finding Nemo or, you know, the Green Mile or stuff like that. These amazing savant level composers or hip hop artists, you know, it's Timberland or it's Trent Reznor or whatever. And all of those people, they didn't give me feedback on my tuning. You know, they didn't say you are a bad tuner or a good tuner of speakers or rooms or whatever, but they, they all taught me something about different facets of music. So, you know, I remember the first time someone said, it sounds good, but it doesn't feel good. That's a really mm. funny note to get, you know? Mm. I remember mm. where I was at, in Capitol Studios and who gave me that note. And that was confounding to me. I was like, if it sounds good, it feels good, right? And he was like, no, no, it sounds good, but it doesn't feel good. And mm. we figured out what it was, what the move was to give him that feeling in his belly, that, mm. that, set, that sort of umami of audio that kind of like, oh, that's it, oh yeah. So mm. all of those people, gave me feedback, but they weren't, they were giving me feedback on an individual problem that became a whole set of experiences that now when I go in a room with someone, I'm sort of intuiting a whole bunch of things about what it is they need and want because I've had so many experiences with so many different types of people. So I think I'm a good aggregator of information or experience and maybe not so open to direct. Uh, funny that the language that came to mind was direct attacks. But to, to direct um, critiques, you know, I yeah. find them, I find they, they get me a little too deeply. So I guess I'm careful about who I invite uh, or let into that space, you know, mm. and I, I can be quite evasive, I think, in my, in my um, language and use of language and control of a situation to avoid getting, getting knifed, <laughs> you know. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about my long time, long time best friend, Ross, like the best friend of best friends and our collaboration and like why we keep collaborating and why it gets better over the years than worse. And what I realized is like, we understand each other's thought process at different moments of that creative process. Like it changes you're creating things and like the ability to adapt to that is really important, but to be able to even recognize it is a whole, it's the first step. As well as the feedback that's given and, and the way it's given, the way it's presented and when it's presented. But it's interesting to think like how he can give me incredibly harsh feedback and I wouldn't take it the same way as another person. 
maybe because of not needing to evaluate it as much or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about that, like in terms of your long-term collaborations, what makes them special to you? What stands out about that? What's different? I hope they're built on, on a sort of foundation of honesty. And sometimes you have to lead with that, right? Sometimes you have to be the, the one who, who puts down the sword first and sort mm-hmm. of lays it out. As I get older, I'm getting better at that. I always had a, a tendency towards being honest, but not always in a useful way. Sometimes it can be um, aggressively honest. You know what I mean? I was like, I was trying to work with my older daughter, Ellie, the other day on like, you know, when something comes to mind about like your sister does something goofy, is it worth commenting on? You know, is there anything, you know, so you, you think, oh, she shouldn't do that. She always does that. And um, is there, should that come out of your mouth? And I was like talking about how in our family, say, for example, generally it comes out of my mouth and quite often I regret it. And sometimes on my wife's side, she doesn't say something that maybe she, she wished she had. And we're, mm-hmm. we're sort of at, at two sort of extremes of this pole. And you're trying to help someone navigate a young mind, navigate through like, when, when should you be honest? So I think that honesty can sometimes be, and I've been thinking about this, doing some writing about like on Instagram, like this performative honesty, this performative vulnerability, that's really no more than, you know, long eyelashes fluttering or, or whatever. It's a sort of a signaling rather than a, an authentic sort of offering, you know? So I think, I think honesty, I don't think I'm very good at it. I don't think I have, I don't think I'm terrible at, at like long-term collaborations or very good at it. I think that the, the project with you guys over the last couple of years was, was a new departure for me that was very uplifting. And I would like, there are definitely some people in my life right now. Um, JJ is a good example or Moritz at Just For The Record, JJ Catalyst, The Mixer. These are people who are younger than me that like I'm all in on, you know, I'm like, how do like whatever these people need, I'm all in. I feel that sort of sense of, of investment in them. And, and them in me. So there are new people coming through all the time that I'm excited to build this with. But I don't know that I'm very good at it, honestly. I don't know that I have much to, to say on it that would be useful to other people. I think you exploring it is, is what's useful, you know? Yeah. Your comfort, discomfort, ideas, open questions on it is what I've found over the past several months with these interviews is that's what resonates with the people yeah. listening. That they're probably questioning it too. Or they might have a really fixed answer that they think there's only one answer to. So mm-hmm. honestly, shedding your your opinion on it is is excellent. I think you're right. I think there is an underpinning of honesty. I mean, that kind of has to be there. I know that Ross will be honest, and I know that he'll see me honestly. You know, like he'll be able to see me at, at the table in my truest form, and I'll show up in my truest form, and vice mm-hmm. versa around that person. And I think that's huge because I think yeah. If honesty is the underpinning of collaboration, the ability to be honest is, I guess, foundational as well. Yeah, I think something, I'm thinking of a meeting we had a couple of weeks ago uh, that I told you about um, with, a, with a new client. And mm-hmm. I think something I'm getting better at is setting terms for new relationships, mm-hmm. like work relationships and stuff that are in the first half hour of a meeting, you're meeting a client about building a studio or, or doing a record. There are opportunities to demonstrate how we're going to do this, how we're going to move through this thing. Opportunities where there's something difficult to say and you don't want to say it, but you do anyway. And you're, you're careful 
to sort of frame it and, and position it in such a way that it's, that they know that like, this was not, um, you know, say for example, you, you know, you go to someone's, this is, this is something from a real project. So a musician who's done an extraordinary amount of work on understanding how studios are built, put in incredible effort into trying to learn, but, but basically went to the internet and just got horrible advice generally on how isolation works or studios work or acoustics work. So they've done an enormous amount of work and, and haven't gotten a great result and are looking to you. So you have to, you have to be in that point, you're a doctor bringing bad news saying this particular patient is not going to make it and we have to start over and yeah. sort of biting that bullet early in the meeting, not saying things that people want to hear, saying what they need to hear and, and sort of being honest about your shortcomings or I'm getting better and better at sort of starting new relationships with a good foundation that's less performative, less kind of flexy or controlling or, you know, because I think with new relationships, there's always a, there's always a moment where you're like, I can, I can be someone new here. I can sort of, mm -hmm. I can sort of puff up my feathers and be a little bit cooler than I really am or whatever. You know, if we, if we cherry pick from our bios, it's like, we can make things sound a little bit exciting, especially with a new client. So resisting that temptation, being real and sort of finding shared values and, and sort of common ground quickly in a meeting. That's something that I'm getting better at, that I'm very happy with. I'm finding like I'm getting new projects, new clients, new relationships on better tracks yeah. so that like early, early, that's been really a, a really good thing. You and Spider have been a big part of, and John have been a big part of that for me of sort of like just being a little bit more grown up in my, in my interactions in that way, you know, Spider will, you know, we'll get on our group meeting and I'll say, oh, I'm just going to go over such and such place and do this thing, you know? And he's like, that's not in the plan. We didn't, that's not, we don't, we didn't charge for that. Like how are, what are you doing? You know, you're breaking the system. We made a system for good reason. Why are you, why are you deviating? And that's been very good for me. So now at various points, I sort of channel your thinking or his, or, you know, Dave's whose studio I'm in, my friend Dave Collins, or I find it, I find it useful to have sort of, to look at work problems or challenges or opportunities through your different lenses. I can sort of turn them on and off quickly. And, and it's really, it's really good. Yeah. Uh, it, that's so funny. I, I was going to say the same thing. There's so many moments where I'm channeling one of you or an aggregate of a conversation into another conversation, um, in a way of like, whether it's for feedback or whether it's for just presenting oneself or whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, I think the thread we started on here was talking about like going into critiques and feedback and how you, how you give it. But I think what you're saying is that there's, there's different tracks that project could go down, you know, and it could be like a horrible project or it could be an excellent project and it could go from an excellent to horrible or vice versa. And sort of starting that in a way where the self, whatever self we're talking about here, that is like the more pure version and not one that you're adding false narratives on top of, if that version could go into a collaboration, that version is probably, maybe not, it might not be easier to give feedback, but at least the relationship is built on that honesty, where when yeah. feedback comes, they know that, again, I was saying earlier, like, it's partially about being comfortable with someone to give feedback. So like yeah. if you're starting as your authentic self, whatever that means, it's for, yeah, 
you know, woo-woo term. But if, you know, I'm getting at, at least someone will feel that they can show up as well and then give that feedback in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, doesn't make it easier. That's for sure. That's a whole different discussion. But I think a good, a good question to ask yourself is if your partner or your mom or your homie could eavesdrop on a meeting or a call, would mm. they recognize you? Mm. Would they like, of course, you know, when I'm deep in a, a, a meeting about acoustics with a, with a client, I'm going to be doing technical stuff or with mastering with a, with a client. I'm going to be talking about technical things that, but in terms of the way you're carrying yourself as a human, are you being sort of true or are you, are, are, are there moves at play? You know, it's a, that's a tremendous question for some people to ask. The answer might not be what, what they, uh, what they want to hear per se, or they might not be happy with, but I think you're absolutely right. I think it's, I, as I've had to sell status to other people, um, and starting that journey with like, okay, I'm selling status to other people and bringing the narrative of what sales meant, it immediately put me in this mode of like, I don't even know who the fuck is on this call. Like, I don't know, like if I watched any recording, I'm like that, it felt, I felt it here. But I also felt it here that it just wasn't me. It was a new version. And yes. instantly it's gotten so good to talk to people about the business and their problems instead of like talking to them about the business itself and the features that it offers, you know, like again, getting away from that authenticity and, or rather in this case, moving towards that authenticity, talking about the other person, getting to know them, building trust with them, you know, before even worrying about where it could go for a business relationship. Um, yeah, and here we're talking about creative work and collaboration. So I bring the business side of it into things, but yeah, I, I've just seen a, a significant difference while approaching things as who's this person? Do I even want to get to know them? Um, there's been a few clients recently where I was like, first call, I'm like, I don't even want to get to know them. Like I'm kind of concerned if I'm around them for too long. Whereas in the past, I'd be like, I need this, I'm taking it, this, you know, like, yeah. So, it leads you down different paths to approach it that way that you're describing. But I think it's way more rewarding. And I think when you get to the end of the road and you look back, whatever that end point is or milestone is, you're like, glad I did that. Like, I, I'm a happier me for doing that. Yeah, it's, it's tricky, you know, coming from Ireland. Ireland is quite parochial, quite small town minded. It's a small country and lots of small, small towns and lots of tightly knit communities. And those things are, you know, at once very supportive and, and also very constraining. There's a, in my hometown, in my family, there is a round shaped hole for me. And that's, that's what you're expected to fit in. And at its simplest or sort of the most zoomed out, you know, America prides itself on being an individualistic culture, a sort of a pioneer spirit, a, an innovative break the mold kind of thing. And in Ireland, that's not really rewarded. You know, I'm obsessed with sort of these balances or tensions, but you know, when I th think about your partner or your mom or someone eavesdropping on a call, you want to find that balance between the only way you know what being too salesy or too douchey is, or too flexy, too name droppy is sometime you have to do it. And then you're like, oh, oh well, I, I, I went, I went too far there. It's like, we got to pull it back. And you don't want to be doing the opposite, which is too humble and kind of like, oh, well, I think I, you know, I think I know what I'm doing, you know? It's like, no, you've been, you've been doing this a minute and own it. So you're looking for that balance. But I think that, again, you're looking for a balance between growing, stretching, 
trying stuff and being authentic. You know, you know, you think about natural strengths that you can lean into. I'm good at communicating to people that I'm their advocate, that I want them to succeed. When I worked with PMC, one of my jobs was to sell speakers. And I was very clear and it was frustrating to, to, to Maurice, my boss at the time, was like, I don't want to work on commission. I don't want my conversations with clients to be based on, I don't want them to be in any way colored by needing the sale. I was like, I think these speakers are great. I'm going to put them in the room. I'm going to make them sound awesome. And if they like them, they should buy them. And if they don't, they shouldn't. Um, right. And and I would be clear with clients that this is how I roll. It's like, I'm going to put these in front of you. And when they were like, I'm not feeling it. It was like, cool. Thanks. This was great. Right. I enjoyed hanging out. Thanks for the espresso. And yeah. I think that's something I'm lucky that I've had. And I'm now using that more effectively in in sort of like setting up relationships and sort of putting things on the right path early. So yeah. I'm, it's funny. I'm thinking about this, like everything we'll probably talk about today. I'm sort of putting words on things that I haven't really verbalized before. So it's a bit clumsy, but isn't you know. that what we always do? <laughs> pretty, pretty much. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's the yeah. best part of our conversation. I want to uh, move down the list and talk about yeah. another topic that is related to something you mentioned earlier, which is, you know, this individualist sort of approach to life um, can often lead to this feeling of competition and comparison. I'm wondering for you, like, how has comparison played a role in your creative endeavors, your career? How has that changed over time? Huh. My creative endeavors, that's funny, because I, I, I was thinking in the shower this morning about being on, a, on an IG Live about creativity and how uncomfortable it makes me feel that the, the idea that I am creative is, doesn't sit on my shoulders. So let's come back to that. Comparison, I mean, mostly is toxic. I think for, for artists and for art and for creativity, I think it's very dangerous. You know, if you're making records and you want them to compete and you need them to be streamed and you want people to like your stuff, it is competing in a, in a marketplace and someone's going to listen to Drake over you or, you know, Phoebe Bridgers over you. And you probably need to understand why. Does that mean you should change what you're doing? I don't know. That depends on everything. But comparison, mostly, I definitely have had many experiences in mastering of people throwing their own record under the bus because they were comparing with, with some release, some reference that they were chasing. Um, and they were like, well, you know, this record has this attribute, so we're going to, we're going to turn that attribute up in our record, that, mm -hmm. that, that brightness, that loudness, that distortion, that loud snare, whatever it is, right. they're going to max that out in to mimic this because it worked for them. So it'll work for us. Um, mm. And it so rarely serves the project. Um, it does on occasion, but very often it undermines it. Something that was unique and standalone is bent into becoming a kind of a, mm. you know, you talk about that thing of things that were designed by committee. And, you know, when you have, when you take something natural and organic and beautiful and that came from a, from a, an authentic, artistic, creative place, and then you bend it to make it more like whatever, insert, you know, mm -hmm. A-list artist here. It's very often compromised. Sometimes it's improved. Sometimes you can take something that is wonderful and lovely and new and bend it towards whoever and make it actually more poppy and more connecting. Right. But often it's compromised. 
So it's, you know, how, how that manifests in my, in my work life is very often clients will send me songs to master and they will send me, I don't ask for it, which some mastering engineers do, but they'll send me references. They'll say, oh, we're looking, we want to do something like this. This is the reference we use while mixing. And I just won't listen to it. So I'll master the record first and then I'll go back and listen to their reference. And occasionally I'm like, oh, I see what they were going for. And then I'll go back and tweak my master. More often than not, I'm like, I just master the song they gave me the way I think it should be and send it back. And it works. They like it and they're happy. So, um, yeah, I think comparison can be really dangerous in, in creativity. You need, it's another form of feedback. You need to see how your stuff stacks up. But I think the, it goes to what is art and creativity and sort of childlike play and expression. And when does that become sort of a product and uh, a service and um, something that you're selling and that needs to compete? If you're selling phones, you know, the new Galaxy fucking Android, whatever, needs to have as many lenses on the back as the new iPhone. It's like people are going to compare. They're going to look at the photo quality or the memory or whatever, you know, whatever attribute people are using to choose. Um, but does your song need to have as much high end as whatever? Maybe, you know. Mm. So there's a, there's a funny transition where something goes from being a, a creative work, a piece of play into being a product often for you and for me, a design that's a doodle becomes something you get paid for or a song that was a hook that, that, a, that an artist couldn't get out of their head, that they were just, that kept coming to them in the morning when they picked up the guitar, that becomes a single that's going to be released and is going to sit between, you know, whoever and whoever on a playlist and they need, it needs to stack up in some way. So when, when should that stacking up moment how far back into the creative process should that reach? Should you be uh, mediating your, your first thoughts on a song? Something that I read the other day, you know, that Hemingway quote, uh, write drunk, edit sober, mm -hmm. um, which I've always loved. Uh, I read a piece from Andrew Sullivan, the, the, um, the writer, and he was making the case for writing sober and editing drunk. And what he was sort of saying was like, write with precision, write with focus, write with clarity. And then Edit drunk was like the idea of getting rid of the ego and, you know, rather than being sort of inhabiting your own mind, it's like, try and be as dispassionate as you can come the editing phase. And it's really just another way of saying, be critical of, your, of yourself. So, you know, the, the, um, the Jerry Seinfeld thing from his episode on Tim Ferriss, you know, when you write, when you make something, never share it with someone for 24 hours, always protect that moment of joy at the creative thing. Never tell someone your idea or your riff or your joke or your concept and always give it a little safe space, a buffer so you can sort of enjoy it and then, then open it to criticism, then open it to feedback. I think what was cool is that I asked you about comparison and, you know, immediately said it's toxic, but also another form of feedback. What I really like though, is kind of where comparison goes wrong and where it could be useful. So like, where does it, how did, what is the function in which it becomes toxic, which is understanding why someone likes something as a means of using that as like a dial, instead of using that as like further inspiration and understanding of people. Um, yeah. and I, those are two very different things. It's like, 
oh, that's the lever that can manipulate them or make them like this thing. And I'm going to use more of that instead of what is the best feeling thing to create? What's evoking emotion in general? And then, yeah, maybe you want to skew the mix a little bit more on the top end. If you think that makes sense, sure. I think when you're comparing to create, to discover the dials, I think that's where it starts to get problematic, where it's like, what are the dials I need to be successful? Let me look elsewhere instead of internally generate something. Let me look elsewhere and find the truth in all these successful things. At some point, you're just searching for dials and you're not really generating. And, and at that point, you're you're really in full production line mode. You're mm. you're thinking about making product, and there there are people, including friends of ours in LA. That's their gig. You yeah. know, they 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 are less concerned with raw childlike play and more concerned with making product that they can ship. And that's yeah. okay too. That's if that's how you're calibrated, then that's important to to know mm. and acknowledge. And and there isn't one. There are people who should stop trying to make records to sell and just should make records for themselves. And yes. there are people who could definitely turn up the, the product dial a little bit. They could be a little bit more conscious of, of, of the ears that it lands on. So, you know, I'm always conscious that if I, if I had the answers, I would be a giant success. So clearly I don't have the answers, but you know, you do see different things as you get in and out of rooms with people of all different levels. I just spent yesterday, I spent yesterday afternoon with a, a really big uh, DJ producer that we're working on a project for that hopefully we'll be able to tell the public about um, at some point. Really exciting, really smart dude, smart team. But we had a very detailed and nuanced conversation about making tracks and playing them for audiences in, in very large arenas and events, getting the audience feedback, that informing the work in the studio and back and forth. And like the, the tiny details that matter in terms of perceiving the feelings and the, and the impact and the emotion in a room with like in-ears and monitors and studio monitors, like it was a deep conversation. Um, but all that to say that these feedback moments, these comparison moments, they're, they are very important in terms of sort of success. You know, mm -hmm. they're very important. I mean, the old, what's the old phrase? Like comparison is the thief of joy. I think it definitely is. There was a book I read way, way, way back, like probably when I was like 21 or two, I got this book on production and it was at the time it had like a bunch of A-list producers. Most of them now would be, would be old hat. But what was interesting to me is they all had different approaches and they all had had hit records. So one guy would say, you should always do black, never do white. And the next guy would be like, oh, you should always do white, never do black. And they both had hit records. So I was like, oh, this is interesting. But the one that I remember the most the interviewer in the book, this guy, Howard Massey, asked a producer, this guy called George Massenberg, and he was like, what's the number one mistake young producers make? And his answer was, thinking their shit is good. And he was like, listen to the records that make it. Really, really fucking listen. And then tell me your shit is good. Because it isn't. <laughs> now right. go back to the drawing board. So he was making a case for like very self-critical comparison to the to the a-list or to the to the records that go the records that are timeless and i think there's there's merit in that you just have to be careful that mm -hmm. you don't let it undermine those original because in that first in that first doodle you know in that first moment when you're sketching out a design on a piece of paper if i rock up with the very best graphic design ever and say like okay michael how does how you know 
how does this work compare with this work? Mm -hmm. Like this is the distillation of a genius's career, a 40 year arc and you've picked his best piece of work and you're bringing it to this moment when, when I'm just, just sketching the first thing, this is a rip. That's not going to serve anyone. And, but at the same time, being in denial that, that, that that's where the, that's the high watermark, that's not going to serve you either. I, I would also add that we sometimes bring that ourselves. So like there's times where I know, um, with, uh, the hit lab specifically, there are, uh, posts that I make that are all illustration. It's like the one client where I'm illustrating more than any other client. So two things have happened early on, which I've now know will happen. And so I, I am able to navigate through them, which is one believing like how good of an illustrator am I? And I can find instantly infinite number of illustrators that are amazing and better than than I'll ever be because I don't even want to be an illustrator, but for this brand, it makes more sense, um, to do that. Right. And the other part is getting like, it's this comparison before the idea is even in existence, like before the sketch happens, you're like, well, is this Dieter Rams? Like, well, you know, there's nothing there. You know, like there's literally, a, it might be, but there's nothing there, you know, like, um, and I think that happens often too. And I think that's a, a trap we can get into is like, before you even create, what are you going in already thinking? Um, what's already like loaded in your head? Um, what comparison might be kind of like a latent comparison that's just sitting in your head yeah. before the pen touches the paper, before the first idea even comes to mind. And that, that's definitely, that's definitely a sort of a vote for right drunk you know, a vote for free play for sort of as, you know, and we talked earlier about the utility of channeling another person's voice, having, having a little version of spider in my brain or you or John or whoever, my wife, um, when I'm making decisions or choices, but you know, when you channel a critic that, that may not be in those, in those early moments may not be helpful. Um, you know, I feel a little bit self-conscious giving advice on that kind of creativity because I'm not a songwriter. I'm not a, I'm not that kind of creative, What I do, I'm around them every day and I do see the pitfalls. You know, I do have a perspective on it and I do want, I, I want the best for all of my clients and all of my collaborators and all of my friends. I want them to, to do the best, most interesting, most creative, most generative work. You know, you mentioned play. So I think we should get into it. Um, I would say this topic for me became a topic solely because of your children. That became an area of reinvestigation. Well, I guess really investigation because I hadn't thought about play directly since I was a child and the word play was used and was allowed to be used in like a day-to-day setting, right? Um, as I got older, that word just wasn't really in the vocabulary of people around me. There was no real reason to mention that word. And then I meet your children and it's like, we're playing the whole time and remembering like play as a concept, play as it, all the functions it serves and, and sort of the infinite functions it could serve. Um, mm-hmm. so I had to include this one. Um, yeah. and I'd love to know your take on play, how it's evolved and maybe even how it's evolved because of your children. They're so unbelievably yes. And for people who might be listening, who don't know what yes. And means, so in. In improv, you know, classic like Second City or UCB, yeah, UCB Groundhog. So the classic improv schools, the comedy improv schools that all of the SNL people come out of, all the Will Ferrells, all the Tina Fey's, all of those people, Steve Carell, they all come from this improv school. And yes, and is 
when you when you're improvising with someone, so Michael and I start improv, and Michael says the improv starts with there's no script, and Michael says I'm feeling sick. What I can't do, what I should never do. The golden rule is never to say no, you're not, or why it's just yes and oh you're sick what happened you know or can i help you whatever you always respond with yes and and it's really hard to do in real improv i did a we, i talked about it some on mic but i did a, an improv course at second city like eight years ago and and my wife at the same time did one at, at groundlings and they were it was crazy how much i learned from that but just the concept of yes and like i can go to my children from the second they wake until the second they fall asleep and I can say, I'm an alien, you're a wolf. And they're like, they'll just start growling at me. And like, immediately we're in wolf and alien mode. Like there is never a, there's never, that's not a good idea. Or aliens don't meet wolves. Like aliens are in space, wolves are on earth. It's just yes and always. That kind of energy is just so infectious because every time you bubble up an idea, a riff, a concept, anything, it's met with enthusiasm. It's met with like, oh yeah, let's go. Like, and it's so much fun. That is definitely the kind of atmosphere you want to create in a in the initial raw divergent place when you're making art. When you're when you're designing, when you're making songs, when you're creating visual art, whatever it is, that sort of open-ended, yes and fearless, warm, safe place to sort of take risks. And um, of course. At the very end of mixing or worse, mastering, you know, I get the probably once a month, I'll get someone in mastering and their, and their notes back to the mastering are like, this is great. Can we turn up the guitar in the second chorus? It's like, no, we, we can't because I'm a mastering engineer and I only work with the stereo. Mm -hmm. That's a mix question. And then we, maybe we go back or maybe we don't. People who want to diverge, you know, late in the process, that's not so useful. And I've, I've been one of those too. That kind of yes and energy, that playful energy, and just the acknowledgement that that's where the good stuff comes from. It doesn't necessarily come from furrowed brow grind. Sometimes it comes from easy free play. And we all have read the interview with someone who says, you know, they'll be asked about a song and they'll be like, well, that song took four years to write. I had the first verse. I had nothing. And then I met this guy and I got the hook. And then another song, they'd be like, oh yeah, I wrote that in seven minutes. Mm -hmm. I sat down and literally it came out of my face and into a voice recorder and that was it, you know? Mm -hmm. And those moments of just free play where it just comes out of you, good ideas are just coming, not getting into critical mode, not getting into, not even really thinking at all. That's crucial. I, I think protecting those and creating situations where they can happen more often. Like I was thinking this morning about my discomfort around just even talking about creativity, I was thinking about this. One of the things I did before the girls came home was I had some friends that I would play music with. So if you think about my, like I say, I started playing when I was 18 and recording and all that. Basically, I played in bands a bunch and, and did some live stuff and whatever. But then from about, say, 25 to 35, when I moved to the US, the US I played and played and played less and recorded, mixed, produced, mastered more and got less and less creative, I suppose you know, at, at its simplest. But one of the things I did when I came here is I started playing again. I, got, I had some guitars at home and I had more free time because I, I was just sort of establishing a new rhythm here. And my wife's work allowed me to not have to make all, like I didn't have to make all the money every month of like she was making good money and we had some freedom before the girls came home. So I played music with these guys all older than me. They were all in their fifties and they were in various ways, very established musicians. So one of them had been in Sheryl Crow's Tuesday Night Music Club and had done a bunch of really heavy jazz work. 
Another guy was used to play with Lucinda Williams and pre- had produced a bunch of records for her. Another guy was this Indian Sarod player, which is kind of like a sitar kind of instrument that had been schooled by like a heavy, heavy sort of classical musician in India. And we would get together for these Wednesday morning jams. And what was really interesting was it was just a three or four hour kind of freeform musical thing. We would, but I would start all of the jams. I would originate every single piece of music. So I would start playing something, some kind of picking pattern or some riff or some groove, and they would take it and run. But I was thinking how odd that seems to me now to be the originator of ideas, you know, to be the, to be the little spring where the, where the water trickles out and then other people take it and do something with it, you know? But what that, what was really interesting is how we created a space for that to happen. So we would get together at 1030 in one of the guys' houses, phones would go on silent. We would have coffee and talk about life stuff. And then we would just sort of ease into playing. There was no plan. We never recorded anything properly. We never did gigs. We never captured anything. They were just, they were just play for its own sake, just little meditations. Um, everyone in their own way had achieved stuff in their life musically. Um, so we weren't trying to achieve anything. They were just pure, joyful little play sessions. And I had another band then that was like this punk rock, crazy jam thing. That was also another version of that, but very loud. Um, and again, I was the originator of all of the hooks, which just seems funny to me, you know? I mean, I think it's in all of us. I think that the way this stuff kind of gets limited is where we, as soon as we say it, I mean, as soon as we start limiting, whether it's some narrative about why you can or can't, I mean, I think about guitar, like, and my acoustic here, I, I was thinking about when I used to live with my parents, I was rarely playing loud, expressive, beautiful music because it felt very vulnerable. I felt like I couldn't. And then yeah. that kept over into other environments. And then like the other day, like I haven't written in so long. So arguably I could say to myself, maybe I lost it. Like maybe I can't write songs anymore. But I, I was at Mike's when I was in LA. Everyone was out of the apartment. I had this guitar. And I wrote like eight different ideas that I've been still listening to and I really love and I love how they turned out. But it was because there was like no one around. It was just pure freedom to do whatever yeah. that I would do. And then it was like in that moment, all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, I'm a songwriter again. And it's like, no, like you always were, you just weren't doing it. And there, I, I think this idea of identity is so harmful in that way because, you know, yes. if you're the originator of ideas, does that mean you always have to originate, you know, like. It, it starts to beg that kind of question subconsciously. Uh, if I'm a singer songwriter, do I always have to write songs or like, can I not? Can I go five years without writing a song? I, I feel like the narrative is so important, I think for all of these things, but also in the other thing that came to mind when you were talking is with the jam, it's like, it, there's this instilled trust in there, you know, like knowing no one's going to hear it. No one's going to judge it on Spotify. We're not going to be thinking about plays. Like I just have to play period and like you never yeah. said the word and you know yeah. even if I mess up like I could recover like the thought of messing up when you're playing versus like messing up when someone's get when you think the thing you're gonna make is gonna be heard is such a different feeling just the thought of it what a trigger is to be is so different yeah. Yeah. so yeah I felt like that was yeah like generating all these ideas so quickly and, and you know I really love them and connect with them because of that it was just like I can't fail here there's, it's not going anywhere. I don't want it to go anywhere. And I'm just going to play that. Yeah. You think, you think about like creating the conditions for one of the notes. I, I made some notes last night of just stuff that were sort of rattling around in my brain, but you think about creating the conditions for creative play and your, your trip to LA 
So you, you're, you're in a comfortable space, lots of light. You have that mm. sort of singing in the shower freedom because there's no one around and you're stimulated by, okay, it's not, you've lived here, but it's still, there's that, that reset of new sounds, new cities, new smells, new, new food, whatever, that sort of aliveness that comes from context changing, like when you travel. So you, you've got that going on. You're not down to your last dollar in the bank. So you have, you know, you're not, you're not way up or, or sort of way down at the bottom of, of the uh, Maslow's hierarchy, which of course there's, we know that that isn't really, it's, it's more complex than they say, but basically you're not trying to figure out where your next meal is coming from. So you can actually sort of allow your mind to drift up into, into sort of creative mode without having to worry about sort of basics like shelter. And so it's a, it's a lot of the right conditions for play. And, and that's really, I mean, I think that's really important for people to consider what are the conditions and can I, can I set them? Can I, can I make them available to other people? You know, like when I'm starting a meeting, it is a, another kind of play. Is there a way that I can in, encourage other people to play, to, to riff, to have ideas? How do we, how do we create conditions that are, that are beneficial? You know, definitely. Um, I was thinking about this with my class the other day, I teach on Wednesdays. So this evening I'm going to be teaching and I interviewed, uh, Molly Fletcher last week. And we, when we started the call, we were just kind of slowly, you know, ramping up into it. And we were talking about like hand massages and like wrist massages and arm massages because she's a violinist. So like all the things that she does to get ready. And so then we just started massaging the different areas. Like, oh, my God, I've never done that. Like, can you show me what you did? So we did that. Then in my class, like I started the class up and was like, hey, I did this earlier. All of you guys are using your hands. Like, let's just all do this for the next five minutes. And like everyone was obviously like initially very confused and like uncomfortable and like, what does this have to do with user experience design? But it felt like this moment to disarm everyone, no pun intended, like to really massage the arms and like massage the area that you're using all the time in a way to bring, you know, focus to um, the part that they may have been neglecting most, um, but also to just do something that isn't school. Like if this is school, if school is slides and lectures, then massaging your arm is not. And so now you're seeing this new space. Um, so yeah, there's a kind of a, there's a kind of a wakefulness that you, that that engenders. And I, and I think, you know, we talk about, you know, all of the smart people that we listen to, you know, across all of these podcasts that we're all obsessed with our brains being prediction machines. When the, the kid sits down with their laptop open to take your class and they've taken some classes before they take other classes online. Their brain is like, I know what this is. I got this. I can, let's turn off these other systems. Let's, let's just, you know, because the brain is trying to allocate resources. It's like how little resource can I allocate to this thing? And just a simple move like that can, can wake up a whole system to be, to be more alive. And I think those little, I hate the word hacks, but those little hacks, you know, that's why, you know, traveling, when we travel to a new place and there's new sights, new sounds, new smells, our body is on alert. It's a kind of heightened awareness because we can't, our predictions are not as effective. Wait, we're in a dark place that smells different. That So our, our prediction machine is not working as well. So, so we're, we have to be more aware and that awareness feels exciting. It feels good. It feels new. It feels, you know, so if you can create a little bit of that in a creative mode, and then the counterpoint to that again is always this tension is like, you know, what John talks about with his mixing is like, how can I delete all of those things so I can just be in that sort of Tiger Woods golf swing thing where the last thing you want to do in the middle of a golf swing is think about it. You know, you want it, it needs to just be pure, 
muscle memory flow state sort of thought-free move, you know? So I think if you think about things like playing as a, as a tool and then you use those tools to, to create something, you want the tools to be intuitive. The hammer's got to feel right and you've got to know how the tools work and, and sort of have that ease with them that John describes, but in a context that maybe stimulates you and provides, um, awakens you, you know? I, I love what Tyler Johnson had said about play. Um, he was talking about, it was a keyboard that he got and he was, he, when he first got it, he just was playing just free form play. Like, let me discover the bounds of this tool. What can it do? Yeah. What can it do? And it ended up being like one of the Harry Styles song, like one of his hit songs was written from that play session. What well, like, yeah, just there's the play to like explore the bounds of something. And then there's like creating a condition of play in an environment of people during collaboration where he's, and he was like, I don't want to be like playing on the tool to figure it out in front of Harry Styles when we're supposed to be writing a song, but I do want to create an environment of play. And so yeah. I'd like those two different things is like, you could play to learn and you could play to engage, you could play to stimulate, you know, and, and encourage. Yeah, that's, and that's something that's interesting for us as we're trying to navigate homeschooling the girls is to try and separate those, you know, what are, what are sort of tools like learning to type or learning to use technology or learning to focus even those different tools and separating those from that kind of freer play style creativity generative thing, you know? Like, uh, I remember at FAMI in middle school, the games that like, how fast can you type and try to like beat your record and that kind of thing. The right environment that could be fun. Um, yeah. Oh, try to type faster than dad. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, you know, exactly. Instead of like this robot on the computer app to type faster, never going to win. I want to switch topics. I want sure. to, I'm in a group of you, but I want to talk about discovering your true self. That's a classic term and a phrase and, you know, can, we can critique the phrase itself, but you get the intention. I just heard it in a lot of creative people's discussions about like, oh, I'm really like holding off on this record. I'm trying to discover my, myself, or I'm taking a break from this. I'm trying to discover myself and da, 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 da. I want you to discover myself. This idea of the self and the true self. And um, I know you've obviously been on that journey. I've been on that journey in many ways. I still am. And I, in a way I'm recontextualizing it to look at that in a very positive ways, like just the next season of self. But I'm wondering for you, like, what has that journey been? Like, where, where are you at with discovering your true self and what have you learned about it? Oh my God. What a question. I think I'm more engaged with the process of it than I ever have been. I'm staring into the middle distance here, trying to think of where I would even come at this topic. You know, however unqualified, I feel like giving people advice on, on creativity, this, I definitely feel like, you know, that I, that I don't know that I have much to offer, but. I will say that I do have another question for you. Yeah. Related. Let me just let me, to zoom into that. Okay. Being comfortable with the process, like what has the discomfort with the process of discovering the self look like? I mean, for me, I don't know about how it is for other people, but for me, it's mostly a kind of avoiding the process, either consciously or unconsciously, you know, mm -hmm. and building up the kind of armor that gets you through life and the kind of grit and push through qualities without really interrogating what you're doing and why you're doing it. I think the, the inner motivations, you know, it's a phrase you've heard me say more 
more than once is, is this 45-year-old me that wants this or 15-year-old me? Like who made this decision that I had to make it, that I had to have some kind of adulation for my work? Who does this matter to? Have I updated my, my sort of value set? Not only updated it internally, but also am I communicating it to the world? Because when you have these moments where you get traction and things sort of move forward quickly, it's usually because, in my experience, for me anyway, at least, because I'm communicating effectively what it is I am and what I w- would like to happen. And I'm doing it in a way, I'm not demanding it, I'm not taking it, I'm doing it in a way that's collaborative. So, like I said, I'm lucky in that one of the, you know, and I don't think I have many things that I'm like super good at, but one of the things I'm good at is engendering trust and letting people know that I'm on their team, that, that I'm sort of, that I want a collective win. So if I can communicate where I'm coming from effectively and to them and what I'm trying to achieve, I find that people want to help me. Even people who you'd think would be self-interested or whatever. And I say this to young people all the time. It's like, if you can, if you can clearly articulate what it is you'd like to achieve, and it isn't just selfish, self-aggrandizing bullshit. If you've, if you've got something to do, people generally want to help you. You know, it's not dog eat dog as much as you think, because most, most people have enough and you're not a threat to most people. If they've got a contact or a, an experience or a piece of gear or a, a resource that they can give you, they probably will. So a huge part of, of making some progress with your work or with your creativity or with your life is to communicate clearly what you need. So yeah, I think, sorry, what, the, where did we start with the question? It was about. And we were talking about discovering the self. You mentioned two parts, uh, one being that you're recently become most comfortable with the process than you ever had before. Um, yeah. We talked about discomfort and what that looks like, but also being okay with the decisions that you're making and what being comfortable with where you want to be and what you're working on and being comfortable expressing that's part of discovery. Yeah. yeah. So- I think from a work point of view, I, th- I mean, m- who is my true self? My true self is that I'm a very, very, you see, it's the lock screen on my phone. It's, it's five-year-old me. I'm a very sensitive little boy <laughs> is who I am. That's the true me. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm very delicate. I'm very vulnerable and oh, through life, you sort of, you build up shells and, and, and armor to protect that. I think, you know, unfortunately, one of the ways that you get to learn your true self is just through adversity, through really bad breakups or really bad illness or loss. And they're all of those moments. They're always sort of these inflection points where you have a choice to sort of embrace the learning or run from it or hide from it. And I've done okay historically at learning. Okay. I would say I would give myself a, a C at like when bad shit happened to me, I sort of used it to know myself better or learn from or grow from. I think I'm getting better at that now and working better with my wife to be. And mostly it's just about putting down the sword and shield and being more honest and being more vulnerable and doing that in public via the podcast was I mean, I definitely had friends to me who came to me and said, like, I think you might be sharing a little bit too much. And it's like, I can see why it would seem that way. It's been very useful for me because there's a comfort you find when you do put down the shield and the sword in public where you're like, oh, the world didn't end. Nobody came in and killed me 
nobody put a knife in my kidneys. I survived sharing about that time I fucked up. And not only that, 10 people hit me up and were like, man, that story really fucking, that really helped. So for me, the process of, of getting to know myself is putting down the sword, the shield, the armor, and being hopefully not navel-gazing, hopefully not uh, self-pitying, hopefully not self-indulgent, but trying to be honest about my failings and, and also empathetic for the stuff that I've been through. Like everyone, I have stuff in my past that was like, that was rough and that caused me to put on that armor. It's like, oh, I see what happened when I was seven and I see what happened when I was 14 and what happened when I was 21 and what happened when I was 35. These moments that caused me to put on another layer of protection. So I want to be empathetic for myself and then by extension, people who are wearing the armor because they've got it on for good reason. If someone is defensive, it's because they've been hurt in the past. It's not because they're an asshole, you know? Dude, totally. I mean, I'm trying to go to like every coffee shop in Williamsburg. Like I want to really like hit up all the ones in my neighborhood and wow. there's plenty, but I found one today that was like a Middle Eastern shop. It had a really great rating. And I was like, they probably have Turkish coffee and I haven't had one here yet. I went in and I was already super psyched because they had like all the pastries that I saw in Istanbul. It's actually, they're from Yemen, but like a lot of that stuff carries over. Dude, they had this like 28 layered buttered dough. 28 layers and this little pie thing is it was fucking insane but anyway i go in there and like i'm i was skateboarding so i was like relatively open kind of in new environments walking in and immediately like i i switched in as soon as i walked into just the guarded version of me i felt it like i felt that change and i went in and, and they were like talking at the register or whatever but i was like more guarded than i had been on the street seconds ago and then I sat down at the bar and, and he was making the Turkish coffee and I didn't acknowledge him or say anything. And then all of a sudden I'm like, why the fuck am I doing this? And then I was like, mm -hmm. hey, and he's like, oh, not much. We got into a whole conversation, found out that he got into like a coma, like a skateboarding accident for like three days. Bro, like the craziest shit I've ever heard in my life. And I was like, wow, imagine like I never had this conversation, you know, like. I wouldn't have right up until that moment where I was like, I'm going to talk to this person. Like I wasn't going to have any conversation. You know, we talked mm -hmm. about seeing in my experience, like with seeing before and his experience and his trauma and like all, like it was crazy. Like what we talked about five minutes and mm -hmm. all because of opening up in those moments where I wanted to keep the shell on, need to shed. They don't necessarily sh only shed over time. They can shed within a not all the layers, but maybe some of them can even shed it in, in certain moments. But we almost like keep them a little bit tighter. And I just saw that's, that today. That's lovely. There's a whole world around you. I've had some insane conversations with people in that same way where it's like, you know, particularly say like with homeless people, there's not, um, I think for most people it would be fair to say, they're not thinking, oh, I'm going to go and talk to the homeless dude. So mm -hmm. I've had situations where it's like, particularly like at a food truck or whatever, I'm buying something. And there's someone nearby, it's like, hey, buddy, do you want a burrito? And I've had some insane conversations with people, like phenomenal conversations with people. There's like a whole, and not in a rubbernecking sort of exploitative, like slow motion tragedy kind of way, but just real connection around shared experience. I, like, I think it's like that they don't like it. Okay. It's, but, you know, but like, I'm thinking of, of uh, a conversation I had with a guy one time at my favorite taco truck before the pandemic, Taco Zone in Echo Park. And it's like, the guy was, he was having hallucinations and there was a lot of stuff going on, but like we connected around some, a fairly deep 
personal wound that we both shared. And it wasn't performative because there was no audience. We were never going to see each other again. We weren't trying to impress each other because neither of us had anything to gain or to lose. We were just sitting on a car eating burritos. And there's this kind of like Narnia-like door all around you everywhere. It's like you just see doors and it's like, oh, you know, but behind some of them are like these incredible deep, either shared experiences or completely divergent experiences, like complete worlds that are just, that have something to teach you. Because obviously, you know, it's so easy when you're in a culture. For me, I've had this experience of transplanting from Europe to the US. So I've lived my whole life in one place and now lived in an entirely different culture. And once you've done that move once, you're like, oh, none of this is real. These are just tropes and memes and habits and grooves that we can pop out of. You know, this isn't normal. This is just what we do here. And they don't do it in Kabul and they don't do it in Macau right. and they don't do it, you know, in Greenland. And they have different rhythms, different priorities. So yeah, that's lovely that there can be a conscious moment of like, oh shit, right now I can just drop the sword and shield mm -hmm. and be like open. That's a nice move. Thanks, man. I mean, it actually stemmed from, so I'm still reading that book, People Skills that I've talked about on the podcast, but I switched to audiobooks. I just totally paused reading for a bit as I was moving and traveling. Yeah. But I picked up the audiobook, so I listened while I'm skateboarding. I'm like halfway through now. And he was talking about just like this discovery of people's ability to name, specifically name emotions and specifically measure emotions. I think it was this CRT maybe person that discovered that, but either way. Mm -hmm like had such a significant impact on their outcomes. So I've been practicing that. Kind of listened to that chapter. It was like, how can I instill this in my life? And I was like, all right, how am I feeling right now? Like when I was sitting at the bar, I was like, I'm not feeling good. Like doesn't feel good, but that's not a good enough explanation of what I'm feeling. It's like, I'm feeling feeling like protective. And it was like, oh wait, that's all an illusion anyway. Like, let me just sort of drop that. And mm -hmm. you could go deeper and deeper into why, but it's like, just the, the ability to name it and sort of measure how much of that I'm feeling allowed me to snap, find the crack, the wedge in that door and just sort of open it up and be like, anyway. Yeah. And I, and I think we carry this armor. Like there are definitely situations that we're going into with riot gear that are just, it's not appropriate. Like how badly could that have gone? What is the worst thing that could have happened yeah. with Turkish coffee, dude? He could have been like, What's your fucking problem? You're not from around here. You don't drink this kind of coffee. And you'd be like, peace out, bro. That is, that's the literal, I mean, the chances of him physically harming you, I think were, were very small, you know, given that he's, he's trying to run a coffee shop. So really your defensiveness, that posture that you found yourself adopting, it was not appropriate to the, to the level of risk. That's so common that we're, we're overdressed. We're overprotected for situations. Yeah, I wanted to bring it up because I think when you think about discovering the self, it seems like, okay, I just need to like find the thing that I like or like find the kind of person I want to be. But it's like, well, what are the forces preventing you from doing any of that? Like hmm. you're going to find yourself through conversation and through discussing experiences and learning and getting feedback from other people. But if there's all this, this armor on top of you that you haven't seen and don't know how to measure or spot when the armor is, is fully, you know, enabled to discover the self seems like a, a real impossibility, you know, or definitely way harder. So that's, yeah, I don't want to that into here, but there's, yeah, a lot about it. I want to talk about, I want to talk about taste. Mm. It's an interesting topic. Where does that sit with you? Where does that word sit with you? Where does the idea sit with you? 
another area that I have not, I have heavily discounted my value in, you know, over, over my life. I feel like I've always been surrounded by people. You know, we talked through the podcast, Eric, I had this funny, like what, you know, when I was coming up making records in Ireland, I felt like I was surrounded by people who were cooler than me, who had been to better shows than me, who had had better experiences than me, who were somehow in some way more in touch with authentic art than me. And I would always sort of heavily discount my experience versus theirs. And I think I feel the same. I always felt the same about my sense of my own personal taste. It was like, well, I like this, but I wouldn't really think that that has much value in the world. You know, my producer, director friend, Philip in Ireland, he has phenomenal taste. And being around people like that, I'm like, well, he's the taste guy and I'm not. But at a certain point, you have to, well, several things happened. Either I've gotten better taste or the world is slowly coming to a boil and there's a lot of bad, bad stuff happening around, around me. But increasingly, I've sort of been leading into my taste and having to acknowledge that my taste is a big part of the, re the reason why people would hire me and communicating that effectively. I did a record for a band last night, very successful, you know, on Spotify and, and all of that and mastered the track. First time working with them, they're coming from having worked with a very A-list mastering engineer. And that's always a little bit of a, a sort of nervous moment when you're doing the first thing for a new client and you know they've worked with really high level people. But there were trade-offs in this mix and this master that were tricky. And one of the decisions that I made was, and I'm, I've been consciously making this lately, is the song had a lot of energy in movement. It made me want to move. And I could make it sound better cleaner, more hi-fi, more legit, more professional, but I would start to lose some of that, like, just... Sounds like, good. Feel good. Yeah, it didn't make me want to get up and move. And I talked recently about, like, somewhere about scanning through, like, the, the Hot 100 or the, the New Music Friday or whatever, as I do every, every week, and just not wanting to move to most of the song. They had no, you know... So I made the choice. My taste is that I want to feel, I want to maintain the movement in this song, maintain that aspect of it and enhance it if possible. And luckily they agreed, loved it and it was great. But that is my taste at play. That is not a technical decision. That is me saying there are five ways we could take this and I'm going to go down this path. And I need to find clients who value that, who value my taste. Because if they want bright, loud, flat, modern, competitive any of the metrics you want to judge modern masters by, if they want to sound more like the rest of the Hot 100 or more like the rest of New Music Friday or the indie pop playlist or whatever, then I would be not doing that. I would be saying, oh, let's make this more generic. Let's make this more like whoever. So I guess that I'm one of the things that emerged out of the podcast that emerged out of this last couple of years was me getting back in touch with actually my creativity. There's sort of a a pivotal moment in my life that you and I have talked about off mic that was sort of like where I, a trauma, if you want to call it that, it sounds like a strong word, but a kind of a trauma where I sort of set my identification as a creative down and sort of moved forward with an identification as a service provider, a self-identification as a service provider or a tradesman of sorts. Or a, and the last couple of years has been a, a kind of rediscovery of 
even if it's just in language, even if it's just in idea formation, even if it's just in connecting the concept of umami with feeling good from base, like that I'm a creative person, that I have creativity in my life and I have taste and I have things that I like and that there's value in that. But it's very emergent. It's very nascent. It's very, it's a small seedling, you know, but it's been the source of a lot of joy. Um, and I'm liking when I talk about defining new relationships, I'm liking that I'm bringing that little, that little seedling to those moments and be like, I'm not just a service provider. I also have some taste and I have some creativity. I'm, I'm sort of setting up new relationships because I'm finding it's hard to redefine old relationships where I wasn't leading with those attributes because people met me and I, and I wasn't in touch with those parts of myself. So it didn't, it didn't inform our, our coupling or, or, or relating as much. In fact, if it did, it was, excuse me, it was in negative ways because that was stuff I was self-conscious about or insecure about or likely to be reactive to. And now I'm trying to be more, not lead with it, but certainly at least bring it to the party, you know? Right. And then try to foster that and, and hopes that it builds, that it grows, yeah. that you feel more comfortable with it. Yeah. Because I can be, again, naturally, I think I can be a really good advocate when I think of someone like JJ, a young mixer coming up, it's like, I think I'm a really good advocate for his creativity or your creativity. I, I want that for you. I communicate that I'm trying to uplift and the more comfortable I am with mine, the more I can do that, I think. And, mm -hmm. but also the more I can allow you to do it for me, uh, or allow JJ to do it for me. And that's, yeah. that's harder to take that help, to take mm -hmm. that uh, encouragement, you know? Yeah, you know, I, I've been listening to a lot of interviews lately, a bunch with uh, Tyler, the creator, because I've been obsessed with his new record. I think it's yes. basically like a Wes Anderson hip hop record. What a, what a great, uh, what a great image. It's wild. But I've been trying to get into his psychology, just kind of hear what he's about. And he was on, oh, and then I saw an interview with him and Larry King. And I was like, oh my God. Like, wow, what a, what a pairing. Which was awesome. It was like four years ago. But um he says, what's the best advice you've ever gotten from anyone you know? And he said, Pharrell said to him, just go, just fucking go, do your thing. And he's like, that's the best advice I've ever got. Fully own the self. When he said it, I'm like, oh, it makes so much sense. Like when you see his progression, his career and the, his output specifically, like you could tell that he's his ethos to just go. Uh, yeah. I also... He said, who are your biggest influences? And immediately he named like seven people without blinking. <laughs> like there's like, wow. yeah, he's, he's really fascinating. Anyway, I love that idea, that idea of just turning off and just going and, and embracing the parts of you, all the weird parts. Of you. One case that I've made to young people is that, you know, the chances of success in music are so small. It's so, you know, it, it's not quite lottery level numbers, but it's such a brutal business. You know, if you're going to copycat, if you're going to try and mimic whoever the flavor of the day is, or even, you know, mishmash a bunch of influences to make a sort of a copycat thing, there are people who do copycatting better than you that are really good at it. So the best chance you have is in sort of really trying to get in touch with whatever it is that makes you different. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, 
there's been a, a realization over the last year or two, because coming to LA, coming from small town Ireland, I had no idea which way was up or down. I didn't know anything. I had a lot of experience in the room trying to make records, all self-taught or, or internet, you know, ideas. And coming here, I really didn't know who was good, who was bad, what's important, what's not important. How do you get in the rooms? What happens in the rooms? You know, where does, where does the gear end and the engineer start? Where does the engineer end and the producer start? Where does the producer end and the artist start? Who's, if this is good, why is it good? Is it, did Rick Rubin make this good? Or did, did Rick Rubin ever show up at all to the session? Was, was not showing up to the session what made this record good? Trying to understand those things. And that's been, that's been a huge body of work for me. But to get to the point, at the end of that process or where I'm at now from the vantage point of having been here 10 years, I'm sort of realizing that I don't want to, in my area, say mastering, I'm not interested in winning if it means competing with the A-listers to master the A-list pop records. So whatever the top of the mastering pile is, the guys at Sterling or whoever, I don't necessarily want that life. Um, I want something different. And that means sort of like kind of opting out of the Olympics in a way um, and realizing that whether I could or couldn't, let's not, let's not um, go there, but whether I could or couldn't compete at the Olympics, I actually don't care about winning that gold. I want something. I'm a little bit of a weirdo. And I came up playing folk music and indie rock. I'm not necessarily interested in being R&B hip hop mastering guy if that's the flavor of the day, if that's, you know, I, the idea of mastering 60 of the sort of mainstream A-list kind of pop thing, it's just, I don't actually want it. So yeah. with that, with letting go of that sort of shared vision of what winning is, mm -hmm. I can now start creating a vision of like, oh, I kind of want a, a more outlier, weird life. So Wes Anderson is a good example. <laughs> He's not an A-list movie director. He doesn't make blockbusters, but he's fucking doing it nonstop, <laughs> making things that he's proud of, that he loves with interesting people, having an interesting life. I'm sure it's full of struggle too, but I would much prefer to be a Wes Anderson than a Michael Bay or, uh, you know, and really owning that means, oh, then my movie can be longer. My art can be weirder. My ideas can be mm -hmm. a little bit non-standard. Even just my mastering workflow. The, there, there's some things about the way that I do things that are, that are non-standard and I don't care that they are. I've, mm -hmm. I've adopted them or adapted them through experiment and for my priorities. Um, and most people would look at them and go, that's a little bit convoluted or a little complicated or non-standard or whatever. That's okay. Because I'm not trying to win the Olympics. I'm in a different, you know, mode. Different game. Uh, different game. I love that. And I think it speaks so much to language and the power of reframe it. I mean, yes. Yeah. It, it's interesting because again, it's like, we're talking about discovering the self in many ways. It's like, how are you going to discover yourself when you've already signed up and are participating in a game that you didn't even decide to participate in and don't even realize you signed up for it and then try to win it and you've never even yeah. know what it means. And it's like, if you could just stop and observe and say, I don't want to play this game. This isn't the exact kind of rules that I like to play by or the, the yeah. winning really necessarily what I value or, you know, whatever it may be. I would say we have 
one more I actually want to get into because it's just about okay. four over here. I want to know if you were to write a book about creativity, what would you put it? Hmm. That goes to the heart of my discomfort about talking about creativity. Um, because I, I like the idea of that seems absurd to me because I feel like, so it would feel like such a stretch for me to have anything to say about it, you know, which is like, even just my, my sort of discomfort around coming on and talking to you about it. But the idea of like writing a medium post, forget a, forget a book, you know? So I was thinking the other day I wrote this in my notes, you know, the idea of admitting failure, you know, there's a concept, like sometimes you just need to ad admit defeat, admit failure, but sometimes too, you have to admit success. You know, you have to allow, allow for that. And lately I've been trying to get a little better at just sort of acknowledging what I'm good at, you know, on a, on the, on the playing field of LA, on the playing field of a competitive high level, you know, place to be in the music business. Um, and as I said, one of the things that I think generally I'm good at, I'm not good at specifics, holding specific information. I'm good, I think, generally at aggregating trends, sort of movements, underpinnings, driving forces, incentives. I have a good sense of that. So I don't think I have anything much to say about being creative from the point of doing, being a creative, but I, I've been lucky to have been in the room with a lot of very, very, very um, heavy hitters and to watch what they do and what they don't do, how they think what matters to them, how they prioritize. It's been an unbelievable education to just see how they arrange their lives and um, how they confidently move through stuff, the teams they surround themselves with. Um, just the DJ that I was talking to you about that, that I sat with yesterday with him and his, his friends and team, the, the level of engagement with the, the topic at hand was so so good. It was, it was a really intense conversation about a really important aspect of what crea creative record makers do. And, and so I think if I was to write anything, it would be some kind of collection of things I've learned from different people. And, and I, I have sort of different people in mind that have all taught me different things. People that I like and even one guy I was talking this morning to Spider about, like one particular producer, the experience of working with him was probably one of the worst in my entire music life. And um, this is a guy I really disliked personally. I felt genuinely disrespected as a human. And yet he taught me something important about sound and music and, and speakers mm -hmm. and how we use them and what's important. And um, there was a, there was a lesson there. And um, so I think that would be my, uh, that would be my book, 21 Lessons from, from Rooms I've Been In. Um, and the way that, that seemingly there are people who thrive in chaos and people who need order. There are people who thrive in collaboration and people who like to hole up and, and um, you know, create on their own. Um, there are people who like to, to make records high and people who, who like to, you know, jog and have a green smoothie and be in the studio by 7 a.m. So... And they all, they're all touching the heart of this thing. They're all finding their way to something special. Um, 
something that connects, something that has reach, that seems to uplift people, and not just make products. You know, mm -hmm. I think when you're when you're talking about people that sustain, they're they're doing they're doing something bigger. You know, so that would be my book. Um, you know, and th those lessons, I I think I've sort of I've teased out a lot of those in in um, over our podcast and in conversations we've had of stuff I've seen and learned. You know, uh, yeah. I'm that's that's why I'm excited to get in the room with heavy hitters, not because they're famous, not because they have clout, but because they have insights that I don't have yet. I was I was thinking this week about how heavily part of this admitting failure, admitting success thing, how heavily I discount the things that I know. Once I learn something and integrate it into my understanding of mastering or music or producing or acoustics or technical, you know, how gear works, I immediately sort of derate it by like hundreds of percent. And then I massively operate um, things that I don't know yet. So if you've got a piece of information or knowledge or experience that I don't have, that's huge to me. I want to be in the room with you. I want to learn from you. I want to watch from you. I want to, I want to get that. And then as soon as I get it, you know, if you ask me, is it valuable knowing that? I'd be like, ah, not really. You know, I'm, right. I sort of, I discount it, but I have it to give, you know? So I talked to, I talked to Kian about, um, Kian Reardon, um, the mixer and producer recently we had coffee and I talked to him about, about that thing of really, ultimately my favorite place to be is I want to be the dumbest guy in the room nine times out of 10. But on a given topic, and I have a very narrow sort of vein of expertise, on a given topic, if I'm the smartest guy in the room, then I want to own it. And I want to really, really help people, really, really communicate effectively, clearly, uplift people, and make sure that I'm comfortable like being smart on that topic. Or just fucking own it, basically. And, yeah. and, and allow it to sort of allow the thing that I was given by whoever, whatever A-list during whatever room seven years ago, who taught me about something, who schooled me basically consciously or unconsciously, allow myself to pass that on to some young producer, mixer, artist coming up and make it useful. So that's, that's kind of my sweet spot is basically being, being the dumbest guy in the room mostly, you know? Well, that was great. I wanted to thank you for a lot of things, first of all, definitely inspiring the early creation of this book and not being uh, the, the example you mentioned before of someone that comes in when I have a very loose sketch and is like, here's the greatest book of all time. Like here's Moby Dick. Here's Shakespeare. Like it's yeah. um, really encouraging uh, the exploration early on and helping to scaffold it in just the right amount of, uh, of ways. And um, it speaks to your thoughtfulness. It speaks to your ability to recognize uh, the nuance of things and sort of the care needed for creative ideas. Um, and I just appreciate you, our relationship, what you revealed today, the self-awareness you're bringing. Um, and I'm super happy that you were the final, but not technically final, but technically final interview on this series as promised from the get-go. Finally yes. here. Um, it feels like uh, the end of like a party. You're like the last one there. Like, all right, man, sick party, dude. <laughs> you know, but it was, um, it was crazy. I, I can't believe like, if you remember like the conversation on the podcast that led to this, 
was the episode about process. Yes. Down all the way to, to right now. And I was in Texas at the time. Um, so crazy, like an amazing and fascinating, just how the journeys, uh, in that span, but yeah, it's, it's, it's huge. Time. It's huge watching you and, 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 you know, just putting it out there that you're going to do this and committing to it and really turning over all of these stones, every, all of the interviews I've, I've caught as many as I could. And it's a huge, huge process. And, uh, I find it inspirational. I mean, the idea that, that you're doing this, it, it inspires me genuinely. I, I, you know, I don't think I'd be writing a book, but it makes me want to, it makes me want to show up. I know that. So to be part of it is really, I'm, I'm, I'm very honored, very grateful to be, to have something to offer along the way. And, uh, and I'm sure I'll get a ton from the book when it, when it's done. For sure. Well, thank you again. Uh, have a great, great afternoon. This is yeah. yeah, great afternoon. And let's, uh, let's up soon. Yes. I love you, man. Thank you. Love you too. Have a great day. Cheers. Later.